everybody. Welcome to the podcast. It may interest you to know. I'm Tony Ann Marcolini, and today I'm joined by filmmaker Nancy Cates. I hope I pronounced it right. It's Cates, right? Cates, yes. My grandfather, yes. it used to be spelled K-A-T-Z-E, and my grandfather got tired of being called Cats, but people call me Cats all the time, so, but it is Cates. <laughs> Very good. See, I got it right on the first try. And Zoe, I believe, who's the friendly supportive cat who's somewhere in the background and will pop in periodically for her two cents. <laughs> She's now um, off camera, but yes, who knows how long that'll last. <laughs> so, I mean, you're an independent film filmmaker and you have a big project uh, right now, but before I jump into that, I always like to go back a little bit and say, you know, how did you get interested in this, in this field? I mean, are you, uh, you know, are you one of those kids like four years old? You're running around with the like the the other half of like the the toilet paper roll, like making believe you're filming people. I mean, was it a young passion? I was given a brownie camera at the age of six, and I still have those photographs. And what's hilarious is, of course, I was really short. I'm still fairly short, but there are all these pictures of adults who are like they look like giraffes above me, you know. <laughs> um, but I I was always interested in photography. The film part of it came a little bit later and you know I was really encouraged in my education to study the great books and I'm interested in history so it was actually I was out of college and I was working as a journalist and I um, got to do this little video piece that connected to something I'd written and I just had this feeling in my stomach like wow I really have to do this and I, I guess I'd had earlier inklings that I would be interested in making films but I just didn't have a lot of I was never encouraged to do this. I was encouraged to, you know, go to law school or something, business school. So, um, so yeah, it, it kind of developed in my twenties, and um, and I did this little project, and I was like, ah, I have to do more of this. So then I went off to film school, and I've been at it for quite a while now. Well, so I mean, do you recall your first time seeing your a project like put together professionally, kind of polished? Well, my, the film I made, so I went to Stanford's tiny documentary program and they were really encouraging us to be professionals, even though we were learning. And, you know, I, I had a short film at Frameline, which is the Gay and Lesbian Film Festival in San Francisco. And I remember how terrified I was. It was at the Roxy, which is this little tiny theater in the mission. And it was like all like people, that, there were a lot of people in the audience that I knew. And I don't know why I was so worried about it, but um you know, that was one thing. And then I was very honored to receive the Student Academy Award for my master's thesis. And that was kind of a bigger stage. And it had just been finished. Like some of the other films in that competition had been out for a year, but mine was like fresh. So, you know, I finished the film. I, you know, I think that the ceremony might've been before I actually even got my master's degree. Like, you know, and then I graduated from my master's program and it was kind of like, whoa, and, you know, they have a Student Academy Awards ceremony at this huge theater in LA with, at least at the time, the Oscar statues are there. And you kind of feel like, okay, they're taking me seriously. And I was sitting in the third row and my parents had flown out from Boston. My father was still alive then, you know, cause I was getting this award and they screened the films and it, it was, a lot of them had been done on video and I had actually worked in 16 and the projection wasn't amazing for the 16 millimeter. But I could hear people behind me in the theater crying at the end of my film. And I thought, oh my God, like now I have to keep going with this. Like I made people cry. 
<laughs> so that was but, kind of a big moment. I mean, it, you know, that film was about American women who served in the Vietnam War. And, you know, it's good that they cried. It's like, it was a heavy thing. Um, but anyway, that was one of those moments when I was like, okay, I guess I can't stop now. I have to keep doing this. <laughs> so. well, well, that well, that's the purpose of good at art, right? To To emote. Right. Yeah, so I, think I don't think I really understood. I mean, I'm not, I don't do this to manipulate people. And so I, I don't know that I understood that that would happen because again, the film had just been finished. I, I hadn't, you know, I had like two prints of it and, you know, I just didn't, I don't think I really understood anything about, even though I'd been studying documentary at Stanford for several years, I don't think I understood the power of film until I heard the people crying behind me. Um, I mean, I, I know that must sound ridiculous, but. No, no, I get it. <laughs> I do. I mean, sometimes it's, there's very different between theory, uh, things that you experience in a classroom uh, and with anything, I think when you take it out into the real world, right. And, and experience, I think that could be said of almost any field. Uh, well, I just and, meant that it was ridiculous because I'd seen so many movies and I'd cried at some of them myself, but it just didn't occur to me that I could make something that would cause somebody else to cry. That's the part, yeah. where, you know, it was sort of new information, but it wasn't like I didn't understand the power of cinema as a medium. Um, so I have to know why, why documentaries? Most people in the field are drawn more to, towards scripted. Why are you so compelled to do documentaries? Well, I came from, you know, working in magazines and nonfiction and um, I'm actually have gotten interested in narrative and sort of late middle age, but um, I, I, it was not, you know, if you come from the world of journalism, like narrative film is not really what's natural. Um, and, you know, I like, I guess I like the quest for the truth. I mean, the truth is always mm -hmm. very subjective, whether it's in documentary or a narrative film, um, but I mean, particularly, I would never have thought that we would be in a world where even the notion of truth is under so much attack these days. But right. I, yeah, I believe in in telling true stories, and and I think that real life is actually pretty interesting. It's funny. I, I talked to an author once. Uh, she got several books. Always writes nonfiction, and she said the same thing. I said, "Do you ever think about doing something in fiction?" And she said, "No." Because the world is so interesting. <laughs> like, why would I want to make something up when the world around me is so fascinating? Well, you know, somebody started asking me about Orange is the New Black recently, just as an example. And I read the book and I love the series, partly because it's very queer and it's very multicultural and blah, blah, blah. But it gets completely ridiculous, which is sort of, you know, um, the creator, um, what is her name? Kenji? No. Kenji? Kenji Lohan, yeah. You know, like that that's her, kind of her thing, like she did weeds. But, you know, the book is a very serious thing about the incarceration system and, you know, prison reform and what it's like to be incarcerated and, you know, how do we change the, you know, whole prison industrial complex, blah, blah, blah. And the, and there's a lot of serious stuff in that series, but it's, you know, it it's, it's to be entertaining in my world, even though I loved watching it, I think that the book had more of an impact on me. But, you know, maybe I just don't have enough of a sense of humor. I don't think that's true, but, you know. Um, I mean, it's a different thing. It's a totally different beast, but. Um. Well, very true. I mean, I had read the book too, uh, going into that. And it it, it is definitely a, a different spin. Or it's, it's 
creatively they they took it in a i think a different direction which as for its entertainment value was necessary um i think and and probably a really good choice but i agree that it deviated i'm i'm a little stickler too there's a lot of times where i read the book and then they make a movie even out of the scripted ones that i don't like as much um so it depends. Sometimes you, you hit a home run and you're like, okay, I can appreciate these two things as being different, but equal, <laughs> right? Like I like them both, but I like them in different ways. And there are sometimes you're like, oh my goodness, I, you know, I was so passionate and love this book and this, this, you know, this film, this television show just didn't capture it at all. So I, I do agree. It's a hit or miss kind of thing. It's a different, I mean, I made a film about Susan Sontag and Sontag famously said that she preferred the form of truth in fiction than in nonfiction, though she wrote a lot of nonfiction as well. And, you know, that film was finished quite a number of years ago. So I've been thinking about this for 20 years or something now. And and I think they both have a really valid place. You know, in other words, maybe the imagination and the transformational quality of fiction is, you know, particularly fiction that's told about real stories is also valuable you know it's just i don't know i think this is kind of like do you drink coffee or do you drink tea you know the tea drinkers will be like ah coffee you know and the coffee people will be like ah, tea why would you bother with that you know so fiction <laughs> nonfiction. i actually drink both so <laughs> <laughs> now i'm a tea gal <laughs> see you see so you would probably be like coffee bleh. <laughs> Coffee when I was young, uh, like more of a college student, I had a, a brief fling with coffee <laughs> and, and then off it went. Then I went into the tea world and I never looked back. Okay, um, so maybe my analogy is breaking apart with you. But... <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, so let's talk about, about your latest project, right? So Bayard Rustin, uh, tell me about this. Tell me about how you got involved, why you want to do it, why it's important. So that's actually not my latest project. I finished that film in 2003. So just to be. Oh, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, I, I was like, should I tell you? Should I? Yeah. So just to be clear. Yeah. It's not, it's not that new. I mean, Rustin's kind of in the light at the moment, um, but. Because uh, of the Netflix, I thought I did because of the Netflix film. I thought that uh, um, it felt new. I mean, I thought that was your lit, your absolute latest, but it's not. And I get they have the chronology off. I apologize, but no, but no, tell no, me about okay. it. Then. It's okay, I did. Like I said, I wasn't sure whether I should correct you or not. But what was your question? I'm sorry, I lost it in there. Well, how did what made you get interested in it, and and you know how how did the process start for you? So there was a man named Jervis Anderson who wrote for the New Yorker, who's been gone quite a while now. Who wrote a book called. Um, Troubles I've Seen, Fired Rustin, or maybe it's Fired Rustin, Troubles I've Seen. That's the title. And I read the review of this book in the New York Times book review. And I've always thought this is sort of funny because how many thousands and thousands of people read the New York Times book review. But I read this review and I thought, wow, this guy started being an activist at the age of 15 and he kept going until the day he died at 75. And how many of us have a 60-year commitment to social change and social justice work? And I just thought, the rest of us are just schlubs by comparison. And I thought, what a life, what a commitment this guy had. And then if you're a filmmaker, the next thought immediately is like, someone should make a film about this person. Um, and I had heard of him, but not I didn't know anything about him. And, um, you know, and you, I also learned as I went along that as soon as you have that thought, someone should make a film about him or her. 
you're it's already too late it's already going to be you you think somebody else should do this but no it's you i mean unless somebody else is already doing this and sometimes i have ideas that other people wind up making and i think okay great you do that i'll do something else <laughs> um but you know and i i called up um a friend who'd worked on eyes on the prize you know the landmark civil rights television series that was made in boston and asked him, you know, what do you think about this idea? And he said, oh, I've been thinking about it for since Eyes on the Prize ended. And it was just like this story that needed to be told that no one had told. And that's how this started. And then we got in touch with Rustin's surviving partner, Walter Nagel, and asked him. And somebody, I think, had tried before us to make a film and had not been able to raise the money um, because documentaries are expensive, of course. Um, so that's how this began. But it was this sense of kind of like, what can I learn from this person's life and what am I doing with my life that maybe feels less significant than trying to end racism in America, you know, trying to work for peace. Um, he wasn't really a LGBT right, queer rights activist until the very end of his life, but he did speak out a little bit in the last year or two of his life. Um, that wasn't his main issue. But anyway, that was the impetus, was the sense of here's this man who's made this extraordinary contribution to American life and nobody knows anything about him. Were you happy with the finished product? That's and I ask because I think- never ask any artist that question. <laughs> See, I like to get into that kind of stuff though, right? Because I, I focus on creativity really for the podcast. So I- I, I like to focus on the creative process and, you know, uh, how people come up with their ideas, how they memorialize those ideas in, in, in whatever form it takes. Um, and I think it's sort of interesting to take the creator through their own creation, because oftentimes when you say, well, how did you, how did you create this? And were you happy with the ultimate outcome? You get a lot of interesting answers. Um, but, but the analysis of it, I think is all part of the process, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the film, I would never have imagined the life that this film has had. I'll, I'm kind of starting at the end here. You know, it's been shown all over the world. It continues to be used in companies and law firms and with activist groups and schools and colleges and churches and, you know, and, you know, we got invited to the White House when he was given a posthumous Medal of Freedom because his partner felt that our film had really raised an awareness of who he, who he was and why he was important. Um, you know, there's this saying in, in film, like no film is ever completed. It's simply abandoned at the point where no one can work on it anymore. <laughs> and, you know, and that's kind of true. I mean, of course, I, I think we took it as far as we could take it. And, you know, it had a amazing launch at Sundance and on PBS and, you know, it's just what the way I think of art is I'm okay. It's been a long time since I was doing high school math, but um, you know, do you know what an asymptote is? No, there's a line like in a, in, in trig where, you know, you can approach this sort of line. We never quite get there. Right. Called an asymptote. And so art is like this thing. You're always trying to get closer to what you think is perfect and you're never going to get there. And the film you're making in your head is absolutely perfect. And then you live in the real world and you do the best you can with the resources that you have and the time you have. I mean, it took five and a half years to make this film, but did we get to the asymptote? No, we didn't. <laughs> I should like get a better definition of what an asymptote is, but you know, like if there's a curve like this, 
there's always this line that the curve is sort of approaching, you know, it just, yeah. you don't get there, you know, yeah. that's art. It, it has imperfection. It, 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 it does its best, you know, but. Was you it know, your visual though? I mean, what is the, I should ask that. Um, it's, it's, it, this is art like any other form. What's your creative process? I mean, do you start with an, the ideas uh, are they all mapped out already? I mean, do you sit down, put it all on paper, or you uh, truly a fly by the seat of your pants visual storyteller? Where um, you know you don't know what this, what the focus of the story is going to be until you're actually walking it through. Yeah, it's an iterative process, I would say. So a lot of the time, you know, you have you gather all these facts and you gather. I think it's sort of like making a quilt. I don't make quilts, but I know people who do. So you gather all the stuff that's like the fabric and then you start cutting it up and putting it together and juxtaposing it. And then sometimes the piece of fabric itself is so exciting, like a piece of archival footage is so amazing that you use that. I had a big fight with the people I was working with on one piece of footage. There was a, um, so Bayard Russell was involved in the anti-nuclear movement in the 1950s, which was very tiny very fringe like that was the nuclear age right everyone you know thought that we'd have free electricity because of nuclear power plants and in the mid to late 50s he was involved in all this anti-nuclear stuff both in america and in england he went to an important he spoke at an important march in trafalgar square and they did this protest the french were doing a test an atomic test in um what's now ghana and they they went there to try to prevent this from going on, which is a really crazy thing to do. You don't want to put your body. It's one thing to put your body in front of a fence or something to put it in the, in the, you know, path of a nuclear detonation. You know, I mean, they didn't get that close to it, but there was a animated film made by one of the peace organizations that Rustin worked with that beautiful, like Hollywood quality animation that was against nuclear weapons and I was like, we have to use this piece of footage. I found it at the Swarthmore Peace Archives. And the editor and my co-producer were like, no, we don't like this. There was some music attached to it, which is hard to edit. I mean, it, I fought and fought and fought for this to be included in the film. So that's a situation where the piece of fabric for the quilt drove the storytelling to some degree. But I also thought that it illustrated what he was doing in a beautiful way. So we cut from the animation to him in Trafalgar Square, or maybe the other way around. I should go look at the film again. Um, but you know, so you want you want to be open to what you discover. I don't write scripts and say we're gonna go film this. I don't do that. It's very much like I mean, editing is a very complicated thing in documentary or in any film, but but in particularly in documentary, documentaries are really my documentaries are really kind of written in the editing room, you know. So you have all this stuff you know the process is first you assemble it so you it's called an assembly which is just a bunch of stuff that's strung together in an order that sort of makes sense that's not finely edited and you look at that and you think about what's what you're trying to say and the in my case since i tend to make biographies this this phases of someone's life and what is available to tell each part of that story because Byron Rustin at 15 is not the same person that he was at 75. And he's, you know, he went through all these movements and did all this work. So I don't know if I'm answering your question. It's a very complicated thing to make a documentary. We worked with like 130 archives from around the world. We got some footage from 
Africa of that nuclear protest. It wasn't really very good. So we used the French one, which was better, but um, you know, we found footage of him playing football in high school in the in, in 1931. Um, so, you know, and we work with people who are experts at finding archival materials because it's a it's an overwhelming job. You know, there are photographs, there are all sorts of photographers of the civil rights movement, some of whom charge us a lot of money to find these photographs. But I, I, it's very hard to explain in two minutes how to make a documentary film. <laughs> I get it. You know, I, I think. I really admire uh, visual storytellers, right? I mean, because I understand it's somewhat collaborative, um, you know, and it involves a lot of hands and getting to the final product. But I, I, I think it takes a vision, uh, right? That's probably running in the back of your brain as you're going through, and also to pick out what's what where the real story is. I think that's a hard thing to do. Um, because you may start off with, oh, I want to tell the story of how this, you know, little boy from the middle of nowhere turned out to be the president of the United States. Like, you know, it's great to want to tell a story like the overall. I want to I want to tell this person's story, how this happened or how they got there. But that's really different than telling the story. Right. I mean, you want to tell the story, but there's something to picking out the real truths and the real points to emphasize uh, and capturing the essence of any person or any story. Uh, it's, it's not, it's just not, it's not easy. It just isn't. Uh, I mean, so I have a lot of respect for uh, somebody who could create a documentary, like any visual really storyteller, because I think, I think to take us visually through uh, is such a difficult task. And when it's done well, uh, you know, the cat is ste stepping on the mouse, which I'm sure is very symbolic, but it's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, it's also a great honor to tell someone's story, but, you know, we were given 84 minutes by PBS. And, you know, if you think about someone's lifetime, 84 minutes is nothing, really. I mean, no. you don't watch a 12-hour film about anyone, but, and editing, that's why editing is important and, and necessary, but, um, yeah, you know, it involves making an awful lot of decisions of, you know, we're going to use this shot or this shot, we're going to cut from here to there or from there to something else. But the biggest questions are really like, what, what's important about knowing who this person was and what they were doing while they were alive? Because I seem to, unfortunately, make films about people who have, are no longer with us, <laughs> which is very annoying because you can't go interview them. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um so would you say i mean how do you feel this this was this was i think it ran on netflix oh sorry i'm in the light in the uh it was on public television it was no on. and it was on pbs but didn't yeah. netflix at a minimum base some of their uh uh film on your documentary well they certainly used it but you'd have to talk to them about that yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, how did it feel though to see that you somewhat then ignited, I guess, an interest or you know a, 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 fl a flashlight or a flame to his life? Well, I think it's fantastic that he's getting the recognition that he deserves. I I think it'd be nice if we got the recognition for doing this twenty years ago that we deserved. But you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing here. In fact, I would prefer that you not use that. This is a very sure. This is all absolutely sensitive 
Absolutely. I mean, can I just, uh, let's see, what about if I just ask, have you seen the film and, and the Netflix? Have you seen it, by the way? I have seen it. Okay. Um, so, you know, have you seen the Netflix uh, film about his life? I have seen the film and I thought that Coleman Domingo did a fantastic job as Rustin. And, you know, I can't help but feel that the attention uh, really came by your your documentary twenty years ago, shining a light. Um, right there, that you you brought attention to the world. So in some small way, you know, I can't help feeling that you know you uh, you you know you started. You know, you're the starting point in bringing some attention to a a, a life that was well deserved of uh, of getting this recognition. So I I give you I give you, you the applause for that. Thank you. Um, and I'm going to ask a question that you're going to say I have absolutely no way of answering and don't want to answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. Do you have a favorite piece of work that you've done? I mean, films are like children, right? Right. That's why I knew. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. No, you can't. You know, it's. I. I mean, I. I take very big subjects, and I take a long time to make them, and so. I haven't made that many films and there are people who are much more prolific than I am, but no, I, I can't answer that question. It's, <laughs> you know, well, then tell me what you're working on now. So I've started making a documentary about Urvashi Vod, who was the head of the national gay and lesbian task force in the 1990s. And, you know, she's kind of like a latter day Bayard Rustin. She was very interested in intersectionality and working against sexism and against racism. She was often the only, person of color in these very white, you know, gay rights organizations that she led or was involved in. Um, she very, very sadly died of cancer in 2022 mm -hmm. um, and is quite deeply missed in a certain realm of particularly the queer political world. A lot of other people have never heard of her. Um, so she's a little like rusted in that respect as well. Um, but, you know, we're just getting underway with that, but it, it's it's been you know, really gratifying to work on this and and to think about another activist figure and what she contributed, just the way that Rustin contributed so much. Um, and I, I think often people are not recognized for what they do until long after they're gone, unfortunately. Well, maybe one day you're going to pick somebody who's still here. <laughs> I'd like to. I, it's really annoying, you know, and I actually, when I started this film on Urvashi, I was like, why the hell didn't they think of this when she was alive? I just didn't think of it, um, which is, you know, my bad, but um, because I'm sure it would have been amazing to get to know her. I met her once after the Rustin film came out, actually, and she told me that she and her partner had watched our film with Billie Jean King and her partner, and I was like, I'm good. I can, I can go now. I'd like to have a longer life, but you know, that was like, it was an amazing thing to hear. <laughs> sure. Just, well, I'll ask this then. Have you met anybody in your process that you really admired and like getting the opportunity to meet them was like kind of overwhelming? I've, a lot of people, I mean, Andrew Young for the Rustin film, I got to meet Nadine Gordimer and actually see her, see her Nobel Prize in her bedroom. <laughs> and not only did she answer, so she knew Susan Sontag, which is why we went to Johannesburg to interview her, but like she had this beautiful dog and then she invited us to have a drink with her afterwards and we had to go back to the airport. We were sitting on, you know, the sort of like veranda area outside of her house and I was just like, 
I would give some part of my body not to have to go to the airport to just stay here with Nadine Bordemer. And she was in her 80s. And I think she was a little lonely by then. But she was very, I don't know, like, she wasn't, there are people who, particularly in our culture, who are very like self-promoting and want to tell you how great they are. And she was pretty modest woman you know she had written 13 novels or something and received the Nobel Prize in literature and I guess maybe if you do that you know you have no reason to be self-aggrandizing because you've you know been recognized by somebody else but she was just an amazing human being and I was like why do we have to leave this is so unfair (laughs) so there's that but yeah I mean it's you know I got to spend a lot of time with Byron Rustin too I mean he wasn't alive but um you know, we were working on the film when 9-11 happened, and I think there was a period of time that I felt sort of insulated from some of the terribleness of what was going on in America and the world then, because I had Byron Russell, who was like a antidepressant. I mean, people used to call him like their favorite antidepressant. Um, and then after we were done with the film, then then I got a little more discouraged about the state of the world. Um, because I didn't have that kind of daily reminder of, you know, he was very optimistic. I, you have to be optimistic to work on the same issues for a huge chunk of your life. Because I, I once added it up and it was something like 39 years between when he started working on civil rights and when the Voting, right Act, Voting Rights Act was passed, which was not, of course, the end of the need for civil rights, but it was a major, major victory. I mean, yeah. who, has, who has the oomph to work on something? And these peace activists, like, I want to also talk about them. So he worked with these peace activists, particularly in the, you know, in the 40s and 50s. They were never going to achieve peace, right? But they were like the most incredible human beings. A lot of them are gone now from the Fellowship of Reconciliation and the War Resisters League. You know, they year in, year out, they were out there protesting and trying to, you know, find a different way to solve human problems. Um, so, you know, it doesn't have to be someone famous who's gotten a Nobel Prize who can be inspiring. And and it is an amazing part of the work I do is that people tell me their stories about their friendship with Bayard Rustin or Susan Sontag or, or Rashivad. That's pretty amazing. I mean, it's an interesting way. I mean, I enjoy myself talking to people, uh, just hearing their stories and, um, you know, what what drives them creatively um so i can imagine like out there putting those kind of projects together on the grand scale you are uh it's it's got to be a good feeling well it's funny i know you want to talk about the russell film when i made this film about susan sontag i mean sontag was a very tough character and a lot of her friends had what i called post sontag stress disorder so when i went to talk to them it was really like therapy for them like they had these feelings that had never had a place to kind of go. And it was hard for me sometimes to hear like, you know, she was a jerk to this one or she blew off the friendship with this one. But, you know, I I see that as sort of a sacred part of what I do. Um, that it, it is kind of like being a therapist, but, you know, with a camera. Sure. And I mean, and then, wow, that's really capturing the truth right? Going back and getting oral history. Um, yeah, I like that. You're going back and kind of getting your oral history and capturing uh, whether it be the magnificence or the not so magnificence about people. Well, that's the thing about biography, right? Like everyone has skeletons in their closets and everyone has things that 
you know, somebody else might be critical of. And, uh, you know, even Byron Rustin, he had a big ego, uh, you know, and, and then you then you as a biographer are left sort of wrestling with yourself about how much of this should go in the movie. You mm. know, can you tell someone's story without making them look either too good or too bad? Because none of us are perfect. And well, isn't that part of the story, though? It isn't the fact that you can achieve success where you can get to wherever you're going and still be flawed? I mean, isn't that part of the story overall? Of course. But I mean, a lot of people saw the film on Sontag and they were like, I hate her. You know, and this is like after me maybe making a few decisions that I would rethink today about did it did I soft pedal it too much? You know, I mean those are just impossible questions. That's that's the nature of biography, right? I I'm not here to pass judgment on the people I make films about, not at all. In fact, usually I admire them, and that's why I'm willing to spend years of my life working on their stories. But you know, and it's a it's a tough thing. You you don't know like and you know, anytime you have anything that's at all critical of someone, there's somebody out there who's like the brother or the partner or the nephew or blah, 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 who's going to be really upset by it. I'm not saying that we make films for the nephews and the brothers, but, you know, um, for example, Russin was fired by this man named A.J. Musty, who he was working for, um, after he was arrested in Pasadena um, with two men in the back of a car. Um, and A.J. Musty was a, a minister, so he he was a Christian pacifist. And he felt like this, and he was sort of a father figure to, to Rustin. And it was very, very painful. And I had very long conversations with Musty's grandson about what happened after Rustin was arrested. And, you know, and, and Musty had, really mixed feelings about this and i don't think that the grandson felt that we were fair to his grandfather you know who really had done a lot to support rustin but also couldn't really be associated with him after he was arrested um you know these, these are complicated issues and you know i doubt that aj musty's grandson is listening to this podcast but it's not i i think we did what we thought was fair but his grandson will never think it's fair. I mean, you know, just as an example. Right. I mean, of course, he wasn't there when there was these conversations were going on, you know. Well, yeah. Well, anything in life is is decision-making, right? I mean, it's all. Um, but again, I think creatively where you put the attention uh, is are there interesting choices. I mean, and I have to believe they come from the point of, you know, the point in your mind that, you are most fascinated with about this person's story. So you believe that other people likewise, uh, right, and to end, will be, and, and to have some sense of balance. You know, I think documentary, you know, format is, it's unique, unlike any other, right? But where, where, where you put the attention in that person's timeline, or that person's story is going to matter. Um, yeah, and you have yeah. to make tough choices. I mean, to go back to that moment I'm talking about, there was a whole debate in another organization that fired him for this arrest about in in the Quaker world about whether it was a bad, it was reflected badly on the Quakers to disassociate themselves, like the Quakers who believe in love. That's their, you know, their thing. And it was this huge like 
exchange of letters amongst all these Quakers about this. And we just couldn't, we didn't have enough room in our film for it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, now, I don't know, maybe I would try to include two of them because it was so amazing that in 1953, they were having a debate about whether it was ethical to fire a gay man for having sex as a gay man. <laughs> you know, that's pretty amazing. Um, sure. Is- I mean, so, I mean, you're saying now, if you were going back and doing it again, you might make some different choices, but that's, uh, that's the nature of the beast, isn't it? Well, yeah. Um, once you finish a film, it's done. It's not done. like a play that you can rewrite, you know, like I heard Tony Kushner talk about angels in America and there's a section of angels in America that doesn't usually get performed, but it does sometimes. And, you know, it's not just that he rewrote the play at certain points for, for performances, but that 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 the director then also changes the play because of the way they're staging that play that's not what happens in film the film is locked it's done um, right and i think that's actually a relief like i don't think i could go back and re-edit my films that would just be you know be like going back to high school or something it's like once was great but you know it's enough <laughs> second and third time not so much <laughs> yeah no, so let me talk. Let's talk. Can about- I say? Can I ask? Some, say one more thing. I'm sorry to interrupt sure. you. I think you you actually touched on this. It's like you're a different person than you were when you made that decision about that project while you were sure. doing it. You know, and that's really interesting too. Sure. Well, as you evolve, I, I mean, I really think that certainly as I've aged, if I look at myself at 25, I'm definitely not the same person that I was. Uh, right. And and I wouldn't have even appreciated uh, certain qualities that a person might have then that I do now. Like when I look at another person, whether, you know, in, in any capacity, I I feel like I appreciate qualities that I never would have even paid attention to all those years ago. Uh, and I think that's just the nature of, you know, living right? As you live, as you see life, as you see things that happen and how people treat each other and things you experience and you go through the hurts and the highs and the lows and you have the battle scars to show um, your journey that's gotten you to where you are. Uh, I think it it also helps mold your, uh, your opinions and your vision. And I think you're much more able to tell a flawed story well as you age. Um, than you are when you're young. I think flaws seem so much more magnified to you when you're young. It's all it's all more black and white, good and bad, black hat, white hat. Yeah, um, you know, Rustin did not speak out against the Vietnam War because he was interested in being connected to the Democratic Party, and you know Lyndon Johnson was in office, and so he felt like he couldn't alienate the people in the Democratic Party who had finally brought people like Rustin into their fold after ignoring them for you know decades literally and so the people on the left that he was allied with were very upset with him and we struggled a lot to tell that part of the story because he never really explained in any piece of footage why he wasn't speaking out against the war and you know it was a very hard section of the film to edit and I, I was personally disappointed in him, you know, and, and again, I'm older now than when we made the film. And I think I understand more about, you know, he might not have liked it as much being, you know, in cahoots with the Democrats as he did when he was younger and he was like a street activist and he would not, you know, and he said that politics requires compromise and 
you know, protest does not require compromise. And he wrote this very important piece from protest to politics, but he felt that at, in the mid sixties that the civil rights movement had to evolve to a political sort of force as opposed to solely a protest force. Um, you know, he was very smart. He was like this real strategist. And, you know, I think about that all the time. And And do we make compromises in our, you know, middle years that we wouldn't make when we were younger? Sure, but when we were younger, we didn't really understand the world and its complexities in the same way. Agreed. You know, or the partnership that benefited the civil rights movement by being connected to the Democratic Party. You know, for wow, it's fascinating. I could I could sit and talk to you all day. Um, so tell tell people how they can get more information about you and the work you're doing. Well, the Rustin Film has a website, Rustin.org. Um, uh, the new film on Urvashivad does not have a website. Um, we have Facebook groups for both uh, the Rustin film and the Sontag film. They're not that active. The Sontag film came out eight years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, people should feel free to reach out to me through the Rustin website if that's, you know, I do speak at colleges, universities, churches. It was really funny. There's a Quaker meeting like two blocks from my house and they were showing my film and they didn't get in touch with me. So I just called them. I'm like, why didn't you invite me? And they were like, well, we didn't know that you lived two blocks away. <laughs> I kind of like invaded their screening. I'm like, God damn it. This is in my neighborhood. You have to invite me. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm always happy to talk about Rustin and thanks for the opportunity to do it today. Oh, well, I mean, it, you created something that you floated out into the world that, you know, it's going to be here be forever. Uh, and I think you, you gave attention to just, you know, a well-deserved career. Um, and that in and of itself is to be applauded. And I really just like the fact that you're creating um, these truths, but, but by picking carefully people that maybe, you know, we pass on the street and we don't give the attention to, but have moved the ball in one way or another, right? Have changed how we live in some way. Uh, and oftentimes those are the people that get no attention. Um, so I like that. I like that a lot. So I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope, uh, and it's an open invitation, of course, but I hope that you'll continue to come back and talk to me as you're creating, as you're creating new projects. Well, that's very kind. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it too. And, um, yeah, thank you for asking such good questions. So. And I'll put links up uh, for anybody, uh, you know, for the best methods that you can uh, you can reach, Nancy. I encourage you um, to really check it out. Uh, this is important work that she's doing, and um, it's well worth your time <laughs> to, to check it out. So I'll be watching. Whatever you do, I'll be watching, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.